You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. One change that has happened for me is that I will never forget and forgive the level of selfishness that I saw displayed. And I don't mean by like certain people, I mean by like society. Obviously I was like, my my work is writing about power dynamics. I know about the haves and the have nots. You know what I mean? I, I, I get how the system works. To see it in action like this in a sustained crisis around the world, it had broke my heart and then I broke my brain. And I just don't know that I personally will ever recover from what I learned about humanity this, like, this last year. From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than Now. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. Okay, y'all. Today, we have a show that is all about re-emergence. Now, we are recording this for full disclosure right around the same time that we're getting some reports about the Delta variant. Um, So it's kind of like we're in this limbo between are we actually re-emerging or are we potentially going to have a couple of more weeks of semi-pseudo-freedom before we all have to go back inside. And it's a kind of tricky thing to balance, but not one that should necessarily be unexpected, right? This is a pandemic, it is a virus, and this is kind of how these things go. That doesn't mean, however, that today's episode and today's guests don't have a lot to offer for us as we consider what reemergence looks like and what we kind of want to bring forward with us and also what we want to leave behind. Now, I don't have to tell anyone who's listening that this past year to year and a half has been painful, excruciating, full of grief, full of sorrow, and full of loss for so many people. And I think that many people used some of this tragedy as fertile ground to imagine a world after the pandemic, right? Many people were able to see this tragedy as it was and fully absorb just kind of the immensity of all of it and then also decide maybe life is short and maybe we don't know what the future holds. So maybe I'm going to do the thing I said I was never going to do and maybe I'm going to change a career path or Maybe I need to reevaluate my friendships or my relationships to my family or to my intimate partner, right? We know so many folks who have gone through dramatic transformations and we'll be exploring more of those transformations and those kind of renaissances as the season unfolds. But today, you know, I really wanted to actually just talk about the logistics and the spiritual kind of tension and feelings and conflict around re-entering this world especially as we re-enter a world where many of the inequities that we first pointed out from the coronavirus pandemic still have not been sufficiently addressed by the systems that are in place, right? And so it's been on us to determine with our own autonomy and our own varying levels of privilege what kinds of people we want to be moving forward. I really didn't feel like there were two people I could have looked towards more during the pandemic than my friends for inspiration here. And This isn't necessarily a religious conversation, and I think that's kind of what's great about it. But um, I have two friends who made big life changes, and, you know, they might disagree with me with that assessment, and you'll hear more about that later. The first is um, Aminatou Sao, who is the author of Big Friendship and also hosts the podcast Call Your Girlfriend. Amina and I have been friends for years, and I've looked to her as a mentor, as a role model, as a guide, and I've really admired her ability to make changes and transformations during the pandemic that also have informed what her life is going to look like afterwards, and you'll hear more about that from her. And then the second is my friend, Michael Arsenault. I met Michael when I was editing Teen Vogue. Michael wrote for us at Teen Vogue, but of course, Michael uh, is a, a very celebrated and acclaimed author, 
you uh, will know his book called I Can't Date Jesus and then his follow-up, I Don't Want to Die Poor. Very funny titles for books that are, of course, very funny, but just have so many layers to them in terms of the emotional life lessons that Michael has learned during his time. And Michael's own metamorphosis had a lot to do with going back to Houston, where his first book takes place, where he first reconciled and and kind of grappled with Catholicism um, and also family trauma and healing some of that family trauma over the past year. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's a bunch of friends talking and talking about our own hesitations and excitement and trepidations about reemergence. And I hope that by the time you hear this, we are in a world where we are still unfolding and coming into ourselves. And hopefully we are doing so with a sense of optimism and compassion for one another and also a sense of what we need to make better in the world. I hope you enjoy. Hello, beautiful people. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having me, fellow Catholic. Fellow, yeah, fellow Catholic or ex-Catholic. We will dive into that. I'm already (laughs) feeling outgunned over here. (laughs) We love our Muslim sister also. I mean, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Guilt bonds us. We, We may not all have religion in common, but one thing you both have in common is that over the pandemic, you both published beautiful, amazing books. Congratulations. Thank Thank you. you. I can only imagine that that was not exactly um, the vision that y'all had for your 2020 book tours. It was not. Um. (laughs) (laughs) How did it go anyway? Because I mean, it felt like uh, it was a warm reception across the board. I, unlike um, Michael, I am a first-time author, so I really had nothing to compare this experience to, and so I didn't have really high expectations. I try to foster a life where you don't hold on so tightly to events that when they don't happen, you're it just really devastates you. So, in so in that regard, like the. I, yeah, the pandemic book tour was, it was not ideal, but it was also, I don't know what else it could have looked like. Interesting. Michael, what did you feel? Uh, I have to be honest. Um, I am very proud of that book. Um, it's it's actually more personal. Well, it's not more personal to me, but it just was deeply personal to write and hard for me to write harder than the first. Um, I'm very proud of what the book did and what it's done and what it's continuing to do in the midst of a lot of challenges and me being very cognizant of the fact that as like, someone who grew up like me, someone with my type of voice, someone who writes and communicates the way that I do. There are only but so many spaces usually readily available to me, which are usually non-existent. And then that was magnified by the fact that there was a plague um, and a depression at the same time. And that my book was about student loan debt, particularly how there's a specific type of debt burdening Black people, which um, Mm. literally most of the people who buy my book or who would immediately be more inclined to support it were the people ch- challenged the most financially. So I was very cognizant of that at the same time. So this was a lot of unique challenges. Um, but that said, I did get a lot of support. People have really tried to um, be helpful, but um, it was a really frustrating time. And then the plague happened. And then I just kind of found myself personally stuck in a place all around that I didn't think I would be in at that point. Right. In, in a way, it's interesting because the two books that you published, Amina and Ann Friedman's book was about friendship and Michael, your book was, as you said, uh, partially about the student loan crisis and, of course, the challenges um, of just like upward mobility in, in the society, capitalist society that we're all living in. All of that stuff was laid in such stark relief. You know, the coronavirus kind of amplified the issues that both of you are talking about in this book, which I found to be really interesting. Like, you couldn't have predicted it, but at the same time, what a balm these books were able to offer people when they needed them the most, right? I think that you're correct about how, um, yeah, obviously, like, no one could have predicted that we were going to be living in just these challenged times of, you know, like, in a plague, truly. Um, And I think that it really amplified, I think for me personally, like scarcity, you know, it was like, what do I, what do I feel like I'm lacking? What do I have? What do I not have? Who has more of it? Who has none of it? And I think that when, um, you know, there is a kind of scarcity mentality that you can have about your relationships. The student loan crisis is literally about, um, about how money is fake and about how we like literally uphold, like um, we literally oppress some people to the benefit of other people. And so I think that, 
Um, you know, I'm not one of those like a silver lining of the pandemic people. Absolutely not. If I could go back and do it, I would not do it. I was like, if we could rewind the clock and not like, Absolutely. I, I didn't learn anything in this time or do anything in this time that I feel like a, I needed a pandemic for. But um, so, yeah, so I, I don't wait, wait, wait. Can I challenge that actually? Well, or maybe let me restate it. What I'm saying is that like I did not need millions of people around the world to die right. for me to feel Absolutely. that I encountered like a particular blessing in my life. Like that's Absolutely. that's how I want to reframe that. Um, so, yeah, so we couldn't have predicted the moment. But I, I think that it's definitely like one of the ways that our work is in conversation. But it's also I think it's the conversation that everybody is having right now. It's truly like. Who, who has enough? Who has more? Who has none? And how do we live in a fair way? And how do we get to choose how we want to show up in the world? And, you know, and how do we challenge the systems that we are all surrounded by? Yeah, the question that I kept asking myself, especially as I tried to write or create things or do any sort of work over the pandemic is why and who am I doing this for? And where did all of it go? Like, I did not realize how much my creativity was tied to my environment, the people I love and care about, um, but also like the rhythm of the world as it was. And on the one hand, I was grateful to have that kind of shown to me. On the other hand, I was like, yeah, and also what an asshole I must have been to not see all of these things so clearly before. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, it was hard to feel like anything I could publish at that time was relevant or important. You know? Yeah, no, I get it. I don't really romanticize art in that way. I mean, I, I wrote my first two books under duress. Um, <laughs> I was paid very little for the first book um, because they didn't believe in me. And then I got paid what I deserved, at least for the second. But I was still having to do a lot of other work at the same time. But no, I get that. What I was trying to tell people, at least when I tried to communicate online with folks or anyone that would ask me, you don't have to force yourself to do or create if it literally doesn't pay your bottom line. Like, I think a lot of times people romanticize work and this idea, if you do all of this, then you get some kind of result. Like, no, it's a plague. People are dying. Things are really stressful. Times are really hard. A lot of people are lonely. It's perfectly fine to sit still. I think it's like a luxury to actually be able to be still and at least try to have some reflection. Um, I worked throughout the plague and I was actually fortunate and blessed for that. Um, but at the same time, I really did use those moments when I didn't have to do anything to not do anything, to kind of sit in like my feelings, good, bad, or sad, or angry, or whatever, to really kind of take the time to process because then I think the art or will come. And honestly, certain things that I waited to do to me, I already been fruitful. Like I don't even, I still write a lot too much because I still have, you know, some lungs to take care of. But we almost there. Really. Um, <laughs> Good, I'm very glad close. To hear it. Yeah, but you know, um, because government loans are a scam. Um, they are. That's all. But you know, I just think I really, I, I wanted more people to kind of pause and stop. But I guess we weren't really allowed <laughs> that anyway. Right. But I just, I wanted more people to see that there's life beyond work. And I really have, as ambitious as I am, I really kind of have not disconnected from my work, but like I have more of a balance. But also I'm privileged too now. I've been watching you guys make big moves in, in your lives. Michael, you, you're making a literal move to LA, right? Amina, you entered a writer's room. You oh. know what I mean? Like all sorts of stuff happened for the two of you during this moment. I didn't know that. Yes, writer's yeah. room. Sorry, Phil. <laughs> Listen, we're 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 writing for TV now. You know, you know what, Phil? Though, like something that you and um, Michael are saying is really just striking me. That the one of the things in the pandemic, I think, that was really hard was the sense of distortion of time. Yeah, like Oof. you know, I, every day for me was a Monday or a Friday. Like truly, every single day, and it it like time just didn't make any sense. You would get to the end of the day, and you were like, "What are like?" I, yeah, it was like a month. I couldn't tell you the difference between a month and 18 months and five minutes. Just time time has been elastic in a different way. And that has been really challenging. But the reason I bring it up is because I think that even hearing you say like, oh, you guys are making big moves. I don't know that they're big. I think that we are all moving in the direction that we, you know, like mm. that we're going. But I think that it's the observing from the outside. You know, like people... And it's again, it's it this ties so into the book tour idea for me, where everyone watches when the thing is done, but who is in the trenches with you when you're making every single step mm. to get there? Mm -hmm. You know, and we are such a like people that we love. Like I'm here for like congratulations, Twitter, 100 percent Like nobody is happier for other people than me. Like I love that. I love watching my friends succeed i love watching them make announcements especially in the pandemic getting good news i was like that's my heroine like when I, <laughs> like if like someone would get good news and i barely knew them i was like 
I can go on for 48 more hours. Give me the news. But I I really, like a thing that I really want to make normal, especially for people who are peers or people like us who are like colleagues and we're friends, it is also like just celebrating that quiet hard work because it doesn't feel like a big move to you. If like, like, you know that like, um, Michael wrote like 80,000 words under duress, you know, and he showed up every single day to do that. Like he did it despite all of the life circumstances you like applied to school and you're going like the application didn't happen out of nowhere. You like got your materials ready and you, you did all the steps. We are doing all of the steps. The the, the celebration is amazing and wonderful, but I just really want to, I just want to acknowledge that like we, you know, like we are people who work hard and it's okay. Like it's okay. You know, like, it's like we work hard, we like put in the time and and it's such a and it's so lonely. I think that that's what the pandemic brought up for me is just that I and writing a book honestly is also a very lonely process yeah. and I did it with another person and we would both comment about how lonely we were and there were two of us. So I cannot even imagine what it's like to be one person doing it alone. I care so much that like my friend is being nurtured every day by their work and that they're showing up under like hard circumstances to make. Mm, mm. Could I actually, as Sesame Phil, that you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, just about the fact, I want the fact that you're even making an effort to change, and not, and I really don't mean it's in a patronizing way. Probably sets you apart from most people because one thing I kind of just noticed, kind of early on, and it's consistent, is that most people have really taken this entire year and change, and nothing has changed for them. And I guess in some ways maybe that's okay, but in a lot of ways, one thing I thought was really disappointing early on was a lot of people really had no idea where they lived, and it was disappointing. Even and people who are black and should know better, like even in Harlem, it, 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 I was very cognizant of the fact that mo- when they say half Americans don't have $400 in their savings, that's half Americans don't have $400 in their savings. So when people were missing checks very early, you could see it like literally within days on the streets. And then there already was an addiction problem. People look through a lot of people is my point. There are people I was, you know, would see all the time on the street who I've like dated or hung out with who would say, hey, did you know that there was a, like a methadone clinic around the corner? I was like, that's been there this entire time. It's only became more apparent because it was, I guess, literally right in front of you, but you should, first, you should be aware of your surroundings, but that's just the hood of me from Houston. But another thing is just that, or just some of the same people, I'm like, you got COVID and nearly the next week, I saw you just without a mask, just floating about. There's just a lot of, there was a pervasiveness of selfishness that a lot of people kind of jargoned up to me, wellness or self this or blah, blah, blah. But ultimately it was just us being selfish. And I mean, American, not to get it too existential, but I know Americans would be inherently selfish, but I just thought there are so many people dying around you. There have been so many people suffering literally right by you and you can't even see it when it's virtually right in front of you. And I found that disappointing for a lot in a lot of people because I don't by no means mean to be perfect, but I guess growing up the way that I did and growing up poor and growing up, you know, abused and having these kind of like, I understand how easy it is to look, overlook people, Yeah, but it was quite remarkable to see even in this, I was like, it, it's literally comparable to like the footage from like the Spanish flu, like kind of like the wheels just kept going and people didn't care. So that was a lot to endure, but I it's mean, fine. You are really hitting me so hard in the feels because like one thing that I will, I feel like one thing that has changed me forever and it's not in a good way, but one change that has happened for me is that I will never forget and forgive the level of selfishness that I saw displayed. Right. Like mm. that has just been, and I don't mean by like certain people, no, I, I mean by like yeah. society. Like I, like I, I obviously I was like, my, my work is writing about power dynamics. I know, I know about the haves and the have nots. I know that I, you know what I mean? I, I, I get how the system works to see it in action like this in a crisis, like in a sustained crisis around the world. It has, it had broke my heart and then I broke my brain. Right. And it's just been, it, yeah, I, I just don't know that I personally will ever recover from what I learned about humanity this mm, like right. this last year. And and sometimes it scares me because I don't I really resist like feeling cynical mm-hmm. about yes. it. But in some ways, like that it has like brought immense depths of sadness. Like yeah. I, you know, like si- similarly to to Michael, like I um grew up like a very much uh in crisis I you know like Mm -hmm. I grew up in West Africa in crisis and grew up like abused all kinds of ways and so like none of this is a surprise to me it's not a like I was not one of those people that the the 
the world, it was, it opened my eyes. Nothing was open to me. I was like, this is predictable. What my eyes were open to was that there is no low that we yes. will not sink to or that when it really came, this was a moment where like, we were in a real crisis and we had to bunker down like emotionally, physically, financially. The, the ways that we chose to do that as a people are really disgusting to me. And the ways that we communicated about it were awful. And then I'm also afraid that we're just going to this, you know, Miss Delta is definitely going to tear through the country at some point, but after she's done with her tour, she's already on it. I like wh what I'm really afraid of is that we are going to move on from this moment and never pause to reflect on Yes. I was like, it's not just that six million people died. Um, the people, there are people who did not die who are barely surviving. And yes. we are, and we're living with them. There are relationships that will never recover. There are there, just all kinds. Yeah. It's like all. I mean, yeah, that. we still like, don't just gonna have move on. affordable health care for America. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's, yeah. as you know, more people will need it as they recover from. Right. Or we made, we, you know, like. I love science. I love that we made a COVID vaccine. Like I love it. We still, um, we still don't have a vaccine for AIDS, another plague that's going on. We, um, we like made shelters for restaurants. They look very cute. I'm obsessed with them. Like I, I love that all of the restaurants in my neighborhood have survived. We refuse to use that architecture to help unhoused, unhoused people. people. Yes. You know, like we, like, what are we doing here? Yes. And so, that it's it that has also been really hard to be like yes like two of those things can be true like I love for small businesses to survive, I don't love that in living in capitalism we decide that some people's lives are more important than others. Right. Yeah. No, that's it's all extremely valid. You know, I watched my fiance go from hospitals in Queens and flattening the curve in New York to doing the same thing in LA as soon as we touched down here. And it was immensely heartbreaking to see the disparities in healthcare and to hear him come home and just be worried sick about any black patient who had COVID because he was terrified about their prognosis versus the wealthy white folks who were able to access healthcare when they needed it. And it, and it was one of those things where so many things were laid in such stark contrast here that you know, you, it was very easy to give in to despair and to give in to hopelessness. But what I did see a lot of people do, and Amina, I would actually count you in this group, was I did see a lot of people really batten down the hatches and get closer to the people who they wanted to be closer to and build bonds that felt stronger than ever and create boundaries about even the way that we all interact together are in community with one another that I, I personally found some, some hope in just because it felt like some things, you know, the smartest among us or, or the, the good hearted among us are not going to let go back to normal. Um, and I just thought that was, I thought that was really interesting. I thought your social media boundaries that you placed were really amazing. Um, and I thought the way that you chose to speak up and what you spoke up about and also how you chose to and to not engage in conversation about some of those things was really, really great. Like it was, it was just good to see. I felt like there was a kind of switch that went off for, for you somehow. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Unholier Than Now is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. You can send a message to your counselor anytime, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available if you need it. 
The service is available for clients worldwide, and there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. Licensed professional counselors are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential, plus BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. And if you don't, take our word for it. You can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com unholy. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com unholy. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by Bev. Bev is a female-first canned wine brand that was founded to change not only the way a product is consumed, but the way an industry and culture have operated for generations. Bev has six varietals of wine, Rosé, Sauve Blanc, Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir, Glitz, and Glam. My favorite, of course, is Pinot Gris because I like to feel French and fancy. Bev's wines are dry, crisp, and a little fizzy. They're super refreshing and delicious. They have zero sugar and only three carbs and 100 calories per serving. The cans may look cute and tiny, but each can is a glass and a half of wine, which is perfect for when you don't want to open a bottle of wine just for yourself. A 24-pack is equal to eight bottles of wine, so you can stack up. Their four packs are great for gifting or hosting, and Bev ships straight to your door and shipping is always free. We've worked out a special deal for our listeners. Receive 20% off your first purchase of Bev, plus free shipping on all orders. I suggest trying their best-selling Ladies' Night Variety Pack, so you can check out all their delicious varietals. Go to drinkbev.com unholy, or use code unholy at checkout to claim this deal. That's drinkbev dot unholy. Bev can also be found at retailers nationwide, including Target, Total Wine, BevMo, and more. I'm just really, I'm not really interested. Like, it's funny that we are all people whose work is consumed very publicly. I have a very um, conflicted relationship with the public in that I have no desire to be known, like none whatsoever. Um, but also in the digital economy that we all I didn't work know in, that about oh, no. you. I, if I could be a hermit in like a, I, I chose everything wrong. I was like, I should have had a pen name and just never shared my picture on the internet. And also I'm like, I'm, I have an anxiety disorder. I'm like, I'm a highly anxious person. I, um, I have, uh, I have like a very serious ADD and like a very serious like depression as well. So my boundaries for me are all about mental health Mm. in that I, I am highly prone to overwhelm and highly prone to like completely disengage from society. There are a lot of things that we are expected to do, especially early on in career. And I say this to the the three of us because we're all people who have worked in and around media where, you know, it's almost accidentally that we have these these careers that involve a degree of social media. I just personally, Mm -hmm. for me, I don't believe that we should have that much input in our lives. I was like, literally that many people should not have (laughs) access to you and you should not have access to them. And I, yeah, and I'm just like, I know that the promise of social media is that everyone has a voice and it's like the Roman town square or Mm. whatever. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I just cannot hear that many people talk and I cannot talk to that many people. Like, it's just, you know, it's like if someone comes up to you on the bus and just starts talking to you, you would think that person was not altogether there. But online, we do that to each other all day. Yes. And for me, I was like, you know, I, and it's not, um, and it's really not like throwing shade or being whatever. I'm really like, I like, I just can't do it. I was like my brain, yes. the way that my brain is, I cannot do this. And it brings me like, it brings me so much agita if I'm like here too much. And so again, I was like, I disengage. You lose a lot by disengaging because it, it sucks not yeah. to be, yeah. you know, like I have a friend who is older, who um, is an author and like kind of like a famous author. And she always says when I, when I asked her about like leaving the internet, she was like, well, you're, there's a mood that everyone is swimming in and you're definitely not swimming in the mood anymore. And it takes a while to get used to it. Like you're, you're removed. Right. And it's like a, it's a degree of irrelevance that you have to contend with. <laughs> but there is also a part of it where I'm like, wow, I love how my day unfolds. I love not knowing. Yes. The Twitter I love, you know, like I just, I love that I get to work out. I love that. I just can like walk to the, like, yeah, I was like, I don't need to know all of this because my brain cannot 
take in all this information. So that's my plug for unplugging. Unfortunately, I have to do that until I don't. I mean, yeah, I have to be online. I mean, I actually took a break for me. I know when I don't tweet every few days, people think I've died or fell into a hole or something. Um, I find Twitter, I mean, generally annoying because people are just wound up to fight and argue and I really don't care. And it tests my, I'm trying to be in a place of Zen. That said, I have to be more online, at least for me, because my, a lot of my bread and butter is still determined by maintaining some level of like social media activity. Influence. When I am free from that, I would like to exercise it more often, but I've already tried within reason to be like, I don't care and just kind of scroll by or not scroll at all. But um, I just, Twitter often reminds me of a bunch of people who were never called in class for a reason. And <laughs> I can't take it. Wow. And I genuinely, the and truth I genuinely, comes out. <laughs> And I genuinely don't like if I tweet something and it's literally like the simplest, most innocuous thing. I know. And it's like, it's just this immediate like, well, I'm different because of, I'm like, I don't have a okay. to give you love. I don't care. And like, exactly. I wish you well and peace. But like, it's six in the morning. I'm literally, I just turned off morning Joe because Joe done says something like, give me 15 minutes. I got a bop to Mulatto <laughs> or something. Then I go on Twitter, think I'm taking a break, and this is like this, and I'm like, see, this is why I'm not involved. The most shocking thing you've said today is that you watch Morning Joe. That's I was the just number say, one. That is a that's like the ball. number one oh, way for me. Like, I, if if I want to have a bad day, that's how I start my day. Trump <laughs> happened. I think that's what got it. I think Trump got yeah. me back into it midway, and I just wanted someone to yell with them. Well, I actually watched them yell for me. Now totally. I'm getting antsy, so I'm like, I can't do I this. So you. I just go back to bopping. But no, Twitter. It's just like, put your hand down. I don't care. God bless it's, you though. It's so interesting, too, because, Michael, I mean, like, I I look at Amina's journey as this, like, very um, internal thing and obviously her relationship to the public. I mean, that's what I at least observed, like, third-party friend vibes, right? But, Michael, you went home. You know, like you were with family again, and yeah, not in you the know, house, though. Um, not in the house, but <laughs> still, that, I had my own space. Like, that wasn't yeah. gonna work. That must have been quite the experience to like recontextualize and to be living through in the middle of a pandemic. Um, well, I, I only plan to be home for like a month or two, but California's rates were too high. And so, I mean, I didn't want to be in New York anymore because I deeply hated my apartment. Harlem got too loud between the fireworks, the sirens, signal and death, and just, I couldn't deal with that and it was going to mm-hmm. get cold. So then I ended up in Texas. The rates were too high. I just kind of, I, I allowed myself fluidity. I think everyone was kind of in, like pressuring me, like, should you move here already? Should you do this? Like, I can't do nomad land. I'm black. But... If I could spend a few months, ideally, like in Houston and, and going through Airbnb and the like, that's like, okay, I'm practicing paying LA rent. I'm fine. Um, it just allowed me the freedom. Like, if I really don't like this, I can go. I will say um, some things happened. Like, my father um, had an injury at work. It, it was really serious. He nearly died. Um, I'm so sorry. He's, mm, sorry he's, Thank you. He's he's fine. But at the same time, um, family, family, to your point, is triggering. Um, I am... I was reminded of my triggers, but at the same time, I, I will say a lot of my books, um, while I, I think I'm, I like to think I'm funny, they're a lot about identity. They're a lot about finding peace and joy and loving yourself in spite of certain things that are honestly, either you're born into, either like economic standing, your sexuality, whatever, or just like these projections of being thrusted on you by like a wider society. And I only just say that to say, you know, I made a certain peace, or at least I told myself that this was a test. But I'm also very cognizant as I write in my books that your problems follow you everywhere. Yeah. I enjoy New York, but I didn't go to New York trying to find an identity there. And I don't, it's not, that's not literally not shade. I knew who I was. That was a, that was a means to an end. Yeah. Yeah. This is for me, home is complicated. I really had to accept it always will be. But at the same time, it's like you, I, for me, at least I learned that some things aren't going to change and that is truly okay. All you can do is love everyone the best that you can. And set boundaries and like really stick to them but that said um Mm. it was an interesting experience um i love my parents i love my family um i'm not going back to houston um to live anytime (laughs) soon uh but i will visit often for various reasons um but yeah it was it was interesting i didn't plan to be there six months but i i knew i couldn't do hurricane season because no (laughs) i guess the reason i i really wanted to talk to you too and as we wind down the conversation i feel like this feels apt is I, I looked at the both of you um, as real, and I don't mean to say this in a way that feels like trite or anything, but it did feel like both of you were going through some soul searching that at least part of it was happening in public. And it was really um, healing for me to watch it because 
Michael, you being back home, even not with, you know, literally in home with, with family, Again, that's something I'm about to be experiencing, right? Going back to Boston. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts you and know? prayers. Exactly. Chaos. <laughs> You're going into hurricane season. <laughs> exactly. And Amina, you know, your relationship to public and stuff was all stuff I had to grapple with as I left uh, magazine world and tried to like chart a path for myself that felt very different than what I was used to. And so I've looked to both of you and admired both of you for the processing that you've done and what you've shared about it and um, also how it's been restorative for you. And because this is a spiritual show, you know, I will say it did it did feel very spiritual in, in nature, both of these journeys that you guys have been on. And as you re-enter the world, um, it's just something I'm I'm keen to continue following. So I guess the the last thing I just want to hit on is like, did this at all, did this experience or did what you're bringing into the world now, did it change at all your relationship to soul searching to your spirituality or to how you view the role that spirituality plays for either of you? Um, and is that something you're open to continuing to explore moving forward? I mean, Phil, I remember when you told me that you were doing this podcast and it was like, you could have told me that you were an alien and that would have been more relatable, you know? Like I was truly like, I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, I'm Catholic. And I'm like, I've known you all these years. Like, I mean, I knew it, but I didn't know how spiritual you were because it had never really been a dimension of our of our relationship. And I remember like leaving that conversation feeling very like, oh, wow, like this is someone that I'm, I like I love and I know and he's my friend and I, I'm learning this new dimension of you. But then, of course, it made sense. You know, like you were never someone who like beat down spirituality down my throat or whatever. But I was like, oh, yeah, like it actually. Yes. Also. Catholicism is the gayest religion. I was like, the pageantry really is, is unsurpassed. You know, like, I don't, even un- I don't even understand how that church is homophobic. I was like, you guys invented the, the like, the pageantry. I get it, because I'm gay Thank and a little you. homophobic, so I get it. No, it's wild. But anyway, like, all of that to say that, like, in our relationship, I, um, you starting this podcast and, and the early conversations I had with you about it really made me kind of rethink my own, like, moral center. I, um... I always say I grew up Muslim, but Muslim people hate that. Like, um, you don't grow up Muslim. You're always Muslim. It's like, even when you leave, you're still like anytime. Like, oh, uh, how funny. It, it happened. Like you, you're not allowed to leave. So you can be I like, hi, I converted that. to something else. And they're like, what? You lost your way. Like you're so, like, <laughs> you're, people, people are just Muslim. People are just Muslim. And I don't know if it's like maybe the particular family I grew up in, or maybe it was like this particular like West African context I was in. But for, or maybe it's my own personality of like, I am such a rule follower. It had never occurred to me that you could just be like very loosely doing a religion. Like I thought that you either had to be like the priest or the imam, or you're like walking so tightly. What I'm saying Ah. is that I am the Pharisee. Like I am a Pharisee. Like you either do it or you don't do it. So I grew up in this like very Muslim home and, um, and like, uh, and my childhood was like very hard and like not you know like some parts of it were great some parts of it were not great but um one of the people who abused me um sexually was the person who was in charge of my Quran education and so but that like I never connected that dot to the dot of like me being disinterested with religion (laughs) it because I grew up in this like Muslim home then I go to a very evangelical high school it's uh run by like missionaries my mom was like you know she's like Christians are whack but their schools are like iconic so we're doing the school but like don't listen to anything else they tell you so it's like as far as I was concerned I was like I've done major religions like I've done the like you've got to go to church five days a week I did the like we're ramadaning every day of the year I like I'd done it and so the result was that like I became this adult who was very much I I think of myself as a true agnostic I was like I'm not um I'm not an atheist I just really am disinterested yeah I believe it and it wasn't until like you know, meeting you and a couple of our New York friends where I was like, what? Like, you like, what? You're, you're what? You're like, you're religion and you're into it, but also you live a modern like life that, you know, that's appealing. And I think that it really did something for me where it challenged me to one, not be dismissive of people who are either spiritual or like actually religious because that mm. is it. It's a bias that I recognize in myself, like so much. 
Um, and it's again, like colored by these like childhood experiences and also, yeah, don't let evangelical people raise you. You'll never believe they're smart. Um, you know, but it's like it, but I really had to like work within myself to be like, Oh, like when someone, when I know this information about someone, I automatically like, you know, like things, different things are happening in my brain. But I think also it's just been a journey of, um, as our friend Cleo Wade says, um, healing your inner child and really just like going back to like, okay, like you can disentangle like some of this, you know, like they always say at church, um, you know, like the church is very different than the the people or whatever. Every religion has their version of that. But I think that Mm. I've had a really good journey of, um, I'm not saying that I'm going to identify as a Muslim, but I have really greatly enjoyed like reclaiming some parts of my childhood because some of it were, they were great. I was like, my mom was a deeply religious person who, um, who is dead now, but I miss a lot. But I remember that like her, the way that she practiced her religion, I was really into, you know? And I was like, and she was a good person. I was like, you're a good person because you like this stuff. Um, and also the internet and memes has changed my relationship to Islam. Like truly, if the internet had existed when I was 13, I would fully be running a Muslim meme account. And I was like, oh. I know. These like, TikTok kids make religion look so fun. No, so fun. The memes are iconic. The like Muslim memes are so good. I was like, they're so good. I'm ready to join again. You know, I'm like, uh. like sign me up. <laughs> but again, I, I think that so much of it has been an unlearning of I don't want to be someone who is rigid. And I think that when you grow up in a lot of religion, you think that rigidity only comes from religion. And truly, I was like, you can carry that mindset, even if you are not someone who like believes in organized religion and God and just really be not open to just taking people, you know, like where they're at or or letting them figure Mm. it out. And I was like, you know what? Religion, it's complicated. Everyone is figuring it out. And for me, it has been like deeply healing to, to dabble but it's the community of it has been really nice and talking to people about it. So, so thank you for bringing that into my life. Oh my gosh. I can't even take credit for that because that, that was so beautiful. And yeah, there is something about like acknowledging the scars from childhood and, and basically trying to make something of them, right? Like what we can turn scars into is, is really powerful. Michael, I'm sure as a fellow ex-Catholic, you can relate somewhat. Right. I'm not particularly religious, but I do literally every night before I go to sleep, pray, starting off with my family and friends and then myself. Mm. Generally, I'm just kind of looking for peace. I've always been kind of looking for that my entire life. I don't really think the plague really changed that, but I do think before it was happening, I did feel for the first time in my life, I wasn't going to be defined so much by what was um, what were struggles for me. And that I was going to come here, not necessarily fantasizing the location, but just the sense of space that I was coming here really to try to reset and to kind of fix everything that I like about myself in, in like a really kind of peaceful way. I just want to feel completely comfortable with who I am in and out. I think um, what happened last year um, really just kind of got me in a lot of ways to face things that would always be there. I really wish none of that happened. Like most people, um, I take no joy in it. I just feel grateful that I was fortunate enough to not be able to struggle um, financially. But I'm enough to really be able to give myself time and space to be okay. Um, Please keep on my books, people. Um, But no, um, (laughs) that said, I really want, I try to, my idea of God is just kind of love and being kind and good to people and also being kind of like kind to yourself. I really am not, I know some of my friends that have seen me this month said there's a, like a difference about me. I will say within the last week, I have been tested and triggered. So um, I'm always going to be, um, I mean, it's this religious thing. I was going to use a term. I'm always going to be just a little bit with it. Um, but at the same time, I really do want to be calm and be good to people. Um, I'm really just looking for calm and peace. And I think I'm getting closer to it. But I am being reminded that it is a daily process. I'm always going to be triggered by certain things. Some things, some people are just unfortunately not born with the fairest shake, but you have to accept that. You have to accept what's happened to you. You have to move on. You have to learn and to forgive and you have to just be kind to people. I try to let that kind of guide me through each day. And I do think that's taking me ultimately to like a better space in life. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. That thing that you said about like forgiveness is also just hitting me really hard, you know? And I was like listening to you talk and, and I think that's something that's, true for people who are traumatized in in any way shape or form or if your life has not been charmed there and I feel this the most acutely when I'm having a depressive episode is that you also realize that the only way that your life will change is if you change it it's like no one is like 
No one's going to give yes. you the thing. It's not going to drop from the sky. Like nothing. Like the, the sea will not part. The only person who will change that for you is you. And and that, it, yes. it, some part of it makes me really angry because I'm just like, oh, why can't yeah. life be easy? You know, because my idea of right. an easy life is someone facilitating that for me. That's yeah. never been my life. But at the same time, like there's a hopefulness to that in that I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm like mentally ill, you know? I'm always like, I like anytime yeah. someone asks me how I'm doing, I'm like, I'm losing my mind, but I'm fine, you know? Like I'm fine, right. but I am losing mm. my mind. But there's a part of that that it almost makes me feel hopeful in that like you can always count on yourself. Like I was like, I've never yeah, had yes. anyone to count on. Um, I never, I did not have a safety net growing up. I don't have a safety net of money. I don't have a like whatever, all of those things. But there is something that is like, I don't know. I try to remember. And, you know, speaking of healing inner child is like going back to those memories and just being like, you know what? Like this a small person really tried their best with the cards that they were dealt with. And mm, there is something yeah. just like, you know, we're going to be OK. Like, it's not going to be nice. It's not going to be fine. Yeah. But there's just something um, that's a quality of human life that I want is that anything can change with a little bit of luck mm. and a lot of willpower. Yeah. You know, like I'm just like we can change, but it's. It is truly, um, it is really a privilege not to, not to suffer and um, to still be alive in this moment because uh, there yeah, are, you know, really everyone is. is not shooting the shit on a podcast right now with people that they love. Right. It's it's so true. I was just doing um, a conversation with our friend uh, Raquel Willis for Pride, and she started choking up because she. I'm I'm actually going to choke up now thinking about it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, where she was like. You know, Phil, imagine who we would be if we had lived in households that validated us and embraced us rather than what we had. Mm. And it's such a um, it's such an interesting thing that I think all of us on on the call or on this podcast today grapple with. Right. And then, I mean, I what I like about what you're saying, too, about the healing of the inner child is about like just being able to be that person for mm -hmm. yourself that you didn't necessarily have and just the empowerment that you can find yeah. from that. And that when you do the work of healing your own inner child, it's amazing what you're also able to do for yeah. others, whether or not it's direct or indirect, yeah. you know? Um, and I think there's, there's just so much power yeah. um, in, in that connection. And, in and that there's work. also something, you know, too, about like, letting life surprise you and letting other people surprise you. Like we, we've all talked about our challenging relationships with our parents. Um, mm. And I like my, my parent that I did not have a challenge relationship with is dead. So that sucks. And um, the one that remains like yeah. we, you know, it's, it, it's been, uh, it's been hard. Thank God he's not going to listen to this podcast because he would not be happy about this. But I will say this about one of the best parts about like surviving hard childhoods or like going through hard things is that, even those relationships can change. Like things for me that used to yes. be such yes. triggers, like the phone ringing and it was someone from home or like they need you or they want you or, uh, you know, just the, the like knowing that I would have to go home and really like it would send me to this dark place. There's something about just being a grown up where you look around and you're like, okay, this is not, it's not my ideal, but also I have some agency and I can decide how I want to be with someone. And, mm. you know, and I, yeah, I was just like, it, you can, like you can take that power back in a lot of those relationships. And I'm not to say that it's easy or that it's charmed or that it's good, but like, you know, Phil, like hearing you and, you know, like, like say that about Raquel and you saying, and, you know, and, and thinking that even about your own family and I'm thinking about, you know, me and Michael's relationships with our family. There is a part of me that's like, well, you know, like it was really hard, but then every once in a while you'll have a nice dinner or you'll have, you know, like You'll yeah. see them as grownups, but I'm starting to understand that my parents were also people who were my age once. And somehow it has dulled a lot of the pain because I'm just like, OK, yes. I was like, when you were my age, you literally had three kids and no money and you were running out in these streets. Yes. And I don't know how you did it, you know, or or you kind of start to see the calculus of like, OK, like here are the things that the like my therapist always says that the reason that I'm in therapy or that you're in therapy is because someone else in your life won't go. He's like, you're you're always here. He was like, you're here because they won't go. And I was like, got it. And so, but you just start to see it where you're like, okay, they're not like monsters. Like I completely see how you get to this place of how they have hurt me. And not that I'm saying that the hurt is okay at all. It is completely unacceptable. Yeah. But I, right. I don't know, like I'm understanding it and I don't like, I'm not 
mad, but I'm still sad. And I was like, I, but I don't have to right. dwell on that again. Like no one's going to give it to you. Yes. But you can take it. You're coming from this place of like being this magnanimous, you know, a figure who's able to offer, if not forgiveness, compassion, you know? And I think either one of those things is, is like Michael was saying earlier, really good to, to lead with. Um, what a thing to choose to put forward and to carry into the world. You guys, this was beautiful. Amina, Michael, thank you so much for for joining us. This was a, a lovely and surprisingly tender conversation. I adore you both. Um, thank, thank you for you making the space, Phil. And thank you so much, Michael. Um, it was really lovely to spend the last hour with you. I'm going to go cry in private I, now, so thanks. I'm sorry I made you cry, but it's been so nice to see your face and hear your voice. It's been a while. I know. It's been forever. Um, also, people who are at home cannot see it, but um, Michael's wearing an amazing Mary J. Blige shirt. Like, <laughs> truly, truly, truly. Truly, truly. Um, we like, love Mary. No. I know you're. You're. Michael's he's an ally. Often he's an wearing ally. like a concert. He's the tea. number one ally yeah. to, to lady artists. <laughs> yes, please stream her documentary on Amazon Prime. Oh, maybe I'll do that instead of crying. Yes. Okay, see you guys later. Bye. Okay, y'all, that's all for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to support my lovely friends, the authors who are on our show today, I would really appreciate it if you picked up a copy of their books. You can pick up the paperback copy of Amina's book, Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close Everywhere That Books Are Sold. And if you want to keep up with what she's reading, obsessing over or laughing at, you can follow her newsletter, Cream de la Cream. And of course, thank you to Michael. You can grab a copy of his book, I Don't Want to Die Poor, or I Can't Date Jesus, which was his first book. And those are both available everywhere that books are sold. That's, again, all we have for today. I'm so excited to see you next week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay blessed. Unholier Than Thou is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is me, Philip Picardi. Our producer is Leslie Martin, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Our editors are Kareem Duwady, David Grinbaum, and Sarah Gibalaska. The theme music is by Taka Yasuzawa. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.